Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm not sure if you can hear that. That's the sound of the dog galloping. I'm on a hillside near my home in North Kent and I'm looking for winter chanterelles. I found a load of them here just a couple of weeks ago, which is late in the season really, but it's been so warm. Oh, beautiful feather. I think that's a pheasant feather. That's in my basket now. <laughs> so I'm back to look, see if I can find more. This is a hill that me and the dog often climb because A, it's a hill. There's not many hills near me, really. Not that you can walk on. I love a hill. Uh, but also, the woods are full of mushrooms here. Often not the edible ones, like porcini and things like that, the, the desirable ones that everyone's looking for. Or maybe they are, maybe everyone gets there first, let's face it. But it's full of really interesting ones. There's always something to see here, something to find. It has lots of the medicinal mushrooms, like birch polypore and turkey tail, which I find fascinating. But anyway, in my experience, winter chanterelles like to grow on a slope. I think they like the drainage. I'm sure someone will correct me on this. And I don't know if this is actually a thing, but I always seem to find them near sweet chestnut. If I'm on a slope and I see the shells of chestnuts on the floor, the spiky kind of hedgehoggy shells, I start to have a little look around for them. It's been so mild this year. I think they've really extended their season, but they're quite hard to spot. They're funny little things. They have a kind of brownish top, which looks for all the world like a leaf. So it can take a while to get your eye in with them really. And then when you turn them upside down, they have veins rather than gills and they're kind of an apricotty, yellowy orange underneath. And some people find that they smell of apricots too. 
not everyone does. I've sometimes caught a whiff of it, but it seems to be strangely fleeting. I don't know. It seems to, like, bring about the memory of the smell of apricots in your mind and then let go of it as soon as you start to sniff further. Maybe that's just psychological. I don't know. But the thing with winter chanterelles is if you find one, you're going to find many. There's always a load of them, if there are any at all. And you have to kind of shuffle about in the fallen leaves to really get to them. And it often means going off the beaten track because I think they're easily squashed. So I'm having a good look around here with no luck yet. But I'm by my favourite little bit of this hillside wood, which is a fallen tree, a big fallen tree. I'm not sure what kind it is. But it always has so many different mushrooms grown on it. I found all kinds. I found jelly ear fungus. I found the white ones who I can't remember the name of at the moment. They'll probably come to me embarrassingly in about three hours' time. And yeah, this year, loads of chanterelles. So I'm going to keep looking. And actually, that makes a brilliant introduction to today's guest, the wonderful Alyssa Altman who I'm just so excited to have her on the podcast because I loved, loved, loved her memoir, Motherland, which is about growing up with, well, I'll let her explain it to you, but her very particular mother and the difficulties that brought about, but also the acceptance. It's a really beautiful book, I think, because it isn't a book about how terrible someone else was to her in a kind of straightforward way. It's a book about understanding a character who also happened to be your mother and how you come to feel compassion about that and how that feeds into an understanding of yourself. But Alyssa is also a tremendous cook and I... I often salivate at the things she posts on her social media sites. I won't be too ashamed to tell you that. She has a wonderful way with food and storytelling and how the two intertwine. Of course, they are inextricably linked. So it feels very apposite that I'm here hunting for the last of the winter mushrooms in this rather bleak new year and about to share a conversation that I'm really proud of and I really hope you'll love it too. Okay, I'm just going to keep looking. I really feel like it would be for the narrative good if I could find some here that I could share with you. But, you know, I may have to be sharing my disappointment in a minute or perhaps I can fake it really well. I think that's unlikely. All right, I'll speak to you a bit later. See you in a while. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Alyssa, welcome to the Wintering Sessions. I'm thrilled to have you. I read Motherland. I was about to say the Motherland Sessions. I completely lost my mind. <laughs> I, <laughs> I read Motherland when it came out and I was just so taken like by the story and by the, the interplay of you and your mother, but also just your wonderful writing that was so... Oh, beautifully reflective and wise, but also just very uh, poetic and and lovely. So I am I'm really really chuffed that you agreed to come on my podcast. Thank you. Well, thank you so <laughs> thank you so much. And I am, you know, I was so delighted and touched when you reached out because your work has meant so much to me and continues to mean so much to me. So um, I have found it very um, affirming and healing and beautiful, beautiful language and beautiful words. So I'm I'm just delighted and honoured to be here. So thank you so much. Well, that thrills me no end. And I, I wanted to start by asking how your winter is so far. It's it's pretty chilly here and I've got the fire on in my office for the first time today and I'm clutching tea with both hands to keep my fingers warm. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's been, uh, we, we actually had our first dusting of snow the other day, which was really oh, lovely. Wow. And um I live in New England and it's sort of where I am is is not quite rural and not quite suburban and it's sort of what they call ex-urban here. And mm. um but I do, you know, live on a little bit over an acre. And if you look out my office window, um there's this sort of great expanse of field and stone wall and and a lot of animals come through and you know, I grew up in Manhattan and so um, that's thrilling to me. That's it's just astonishing to me every time I see oh, a fox. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It sounds really beautiful. And for someone who is as into food as you, it must really keep you close to food production culture as well. I assume. You know, it does. And and uh, you know, I, I, it's taken me a long time to realize that when I when I'm writing about food, I'm actually really writing about nurturing and sustenance in whatever forms they mm. come. And, and I, I wrote yesterday uh, somewhere that it's not always about what's on the table, but what's who's around the table. But of yeah. course, you know, we we are lucky to live in an, in an area where there are some really wonderful farms and organic farms and uh, food producers and cheese makers and, mm. uh, and bread bakers and you know, they're all within earshot and, and that's just oh, wow. such an amazing thing. And we, we keep a, a oversized garden that's really beginning to just look like, you know, doom. I mean, it's just a mess. <laughs> and, and we always, we always sort of overshoot in terms of, you know, our own time and ability and, and, and it's this massive, massive garden, but we're still, you know, we're still picking um, hardy greens, which love frost and love cold weather. And, and uh, yeah, no, I, you know, I find it very, very um, comforting and healing. And, and, um, and of course, I love, mm. I love to cook. So as you would think. <laughs> Yeah, I, it's one of the th- one of the reasons why I'm always really drawn to you and all your feeds is I think we we share a love of of good food, but also of cooking for other people. Like that's one of my favourite things to do is to to cook for a big table of people and to put big plates on the in front of them and feed them. I'm a, I'm definitely a feeder. I yeah. can't stop myself. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know I think that there's a spirit, you know, certainly a spiritual component to that, and and. Uh, um, nothing really gives me greater pleasure than to have people I care about and, mm. and strangers, you know, uh, around the table as well. And, and um, we just uh, had our Thanksgiving holiday last weekend. And um, and now, of course, we're heading into Christmas and, and um, we have a very small family. My wife is the uh, only child and I'm an only child and her parents right. have passed and my mother is still 
with us, but we, you know, we have a, a limited, uh, a limited group. And, uh, you know, we're talking, we're already talking about, you know, what will we do for Christmas and who will be around the table and what will be on the table. And we have a, a, a new, not so new anymore, um, a cousin who is going on 20 months old. So he'll be at the table. Oh, and, how lovely. Yeah. And that's just, <laughs> you know, that just means everything to me. So that's great. Everything gets invigorated again when new children come into the family, I think, doesn't it? You, it, I, I mean, I found that it made me really reflect on what we are and what we want to pass on and what our traditions are. You know, it, it, it kind of makes you conscious of the things that you want to share with that new generation that's coming along. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. And he's, you know, he's a love. I mean, I think all, all little ones are absolute loves, but he's, he's a special little boy. So. Ah, that's so nice. And what did you cook for Thanksgiving? I cooked the traditional turkey, which I know that Mm -hmm. in England, it's usually, that's usually Christmas. Yes. Well, we don't have we don't have any opportunity other than Christmas, really. <laughs> yeah, and and it's the same here for Thanksgiving. No, no one I know <laughs> cooks a turkey at any other time of year. But we had this, yeah. you know, we had this massive turkey that was you know twenty two pounds and just a giant, like the size of a Volkswagen, huge, huge <laughs> bird. And you know, and we're we're kind of kitchen traditionalists, and we we like what you know we like what we like, and we like we like um, I guess what's expected. And my wife is a um, a really wonderful uh, baker and um, pie baker, and sp- specifically. So um, so we had that, but we're you know we're already on to you know, and after four days, you're kind of thinking. Oh God, what am I going to do with the leftovers? You know, and how much you know turkey <laughs> pie can I make, and how much? And so we're you know we're on to um, to Christmas and and thinking about that now. So that's great. Ah, that's so nice. Oh, I I could I could sit and talk about food for ages as ever. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's really soothing. I want to know what everyone's eating and how they serve it and how they cooked it. And like, if they've got any recipes to pass on to me, please, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this is a really good moment to talk about your mum. Did she come for Thanksgiving and did she behave herself? Um, the answer is yes and no. <laughs> um, oh dear. Yeah, she did. She did come. And, you know, as long as I have Thanksgiving and she's here, she will be here um, because I feel... You know, I, I feel a sense of obligation, moral obligation. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure, um, certainly my therapist will agree that there is always a a hint of a whiff of hope that things will be different this time. And of course, they really never are because that's just who she is. And 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 I think that she she enjoys uh, the food. She enjoys being the center of attention. And and even if she's not the center of attention by the time the evening is over, she is. And you know, she's she she did as well as she could possibly do given her issues. And yeah, you know, yeah. and then and she was here for a couple of days and then we brought her back to New York and you know, and she's and she's fine. But she was she was here. And, um, you know, it's, it's complicated. And as, you know, as I said in the book, it, in Motherland, that, um, it's complicated and there, there really almost is no resolution with, with someone like her because, Mm. you know, we, we have to, I think writers as a rule and artists as a rule have to be comfortable with the idea of writing about ambiguity. And there's no, you know, our stories are not tied up with nice, neat little ribbons. Our people in our lives who are difficult will almost always be difficult to one degree or another. And we have to be okay to talk about that and to say that. And mm. and um, life is not, you know, as we say, a Hallmark card in this country. That's what you know, we say here. And, and No, no, we, we have them too. Don't you worry. Yeah. We totally understand that. You know, so I've had to get comfortable with the idea that she, you know, she has issues surrounding the table, that the table is quite threatening to her and the fact of food is very threatening to her, even at 86 years old. And and mm. um, and this was really the first visit where I, I looked at her and I could actually see how 
much she has changed over the last year. Um, wow. And that things are going to be likely very different this year and the coming year. And I will be called upon to do, to, to respond to her in different ways than I have before, you know, and that's complicated. It's, it's very complicated, but I, sure you know, I love her yeah. and she is my mother. She makes me want to tear my face off half the time, but you know, there, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> So for so for anyone on my podcast who's not or listening to my podcast who's not come across your work yet, tell us a little bit about her because she is this. I mean, she's this central person in your life, obviously because you're she's your mother, but also she sucks up more of your attention than probably most people's mothers do for for loads of very specific reasons, right? Yes. Yeah, so so my mother. Um, I, I think that the best place to start is you know my my mother was a in the fifties and here in the States, she was a, a television singer and um, she was a performer, um, a, a, a featured performer at the Copacabana in New York and sort of moved in the crowd that involved, you know, people like Frank Sinatra and um, Peggy Lee. And that was her world. And she left television and, and performance and became a model. And my mother is, tall or or was tall and and lanky and thin and the kind of person you can drape a burlap sack over and it looks like she's wearing hot couture um very very fashion she's incredibly glamorous she's incredibly like (laughs) how did we get how is this even possible i don't know but um but she, so she is, uh, you know, very, very thin and really just a lot of makeup. And we, you know, I, I, I call her sort of hyper heterosexual. She is just over the top glam queen. <laughs> and the best way I think to describe my relationship with her is that she did not know that she was pregnant with me for six months. Um, yeah. And she is that sort of disconnected from her body and the workings of her body and, mm. you know, she's not a great lover of children, <laughs> sadly. <laughs> and we, you know, here we were sort of thrust into each other's lives. I was very, very close to my father. Um, he and I were really foundational to each other's lives. And, and uh, probably if it was not, if it had not been for my father, I would not be having this conversation with you right now. Um, right. He was a great you know, he saved me in so many ways. And then of course they divorced. So that was, you know, that was that. Mm. But she and I butted heads, I think would be the the sort of light way to put it. Um, from the first time I was able to say the word no to her and children learn to say no, usually in earnest when they're about 10 or 11 years old, certainly girls do. <laughs> My one's done it much earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I mean my you know my friends who have you know my friends who have three year olds say yeah not really you know it starts a little bit earlier, but we are absolutely as uh, antithetical to each other in every way mm. that a mother and daughter could possibly be. She is hyper heterosexual glam queen. I am gay. I've been married to my wife for twenty one years. We yeah. we look at the world from a different from different angles, and it's always been very very um, very challenging. And as I wrote in Motherland, when my mother's second husband died, while well, I was living in New York City, where I grew up, my mother is a quintessential New Yorker. My my <laughs> stepfather passed away, and I became my mother's uh, primary relation and yeah. primary relationship. And she would do things like show up at my office and show up at my apartment unannounced. And, it, you know, it became, it became very, very difficult. There was a, so that, that was sort of the surface, our surface story, mm. you know, but underneath that, there was a lot of enmity and anger and resentment because my mother felt and probably continues to feel that had I not come along she would have continued on with her performing and her singing and her modeling and her acting. And, and, and that's probably right. That's probably accurate to some degree. So. Mm, That's so tricky, isn't it? I think it's something that a lot of mothers feel about their children, but 
of course, the job is to kind of get over that to some extent. It, it, I, I it, guess, it, yeah. it is. And I, you know, I, I've, I've written, I think it was in my second book that um, I was talking about Doris Lessing, who famously, you know, left, she had, I yes. want to say three yeah, children. Yeah, son, yeah. yeah. And she, she left and she was living in South Africa and she left two of them behind and took the third and moved to London where she felt that that was where her career was going to be. And, and she was, mm. you know, she was made and she was made a prior and, 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 and it's, it's really a very, it's, it's something that we don't talk about. It's something that, no. it's something that no. we don't talk about. But from my point of view, I mean, I've lived with that sense of, you know, resentment for, you know, I'm 58. So 58 years. Yeah, it's, a, it's a long time. Yeah. But yeah. you're, you know, I think you're really strikingly compassionate to your mum in a way that loads of people aren't towards their mothers, actually. You know, it's it's really common for women to, you know, like women and mothers and boys and fathers seems to still be the, the sort of lines of tension that we that we find. And it's so common for people to be a lot less kind than you are to your mum. I mean, you take enormous responsibility for her and her well-being and you really seem to kind of accept and understand her and her very particular ways in a way that other people don't for much milder behaviour. I think it's so admirable. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I think that I know that my mother has, you know, I, I suffer and I, I've written about this extensively that, and so I'm very comfortable talking about it, that I suffer from fairly significant clinical depression. And my father mm. did. And my mother also lives with fairly severe mental illness diagnosed mm. and she is really incapable of self-care and decision proper decision making um, when it comes to her own safety you know so certainly on the one hand I mean she's my mother I love her and I do feel a moral obligation to make sure that she's safe but I also uh, you know I often say that turning my back on my mother, would be like turning my back on a two-year-old child running into oncoming traffic. Right. I couldn't do that. And she has no one else. I have no siblings. She has no siblings. Uh, there is no, uh, you know, there is no man in her life or or anyone in that romantic role in, in her life. And she lives a very, although she lives in Manhattan and she is surrounded by, by people, um, she lives a very isolated life. I'm two hours away from her. Um, yeah. and, and she is getting obviously older. She's 86 now and, and we're just beginning to see some memory changes and, and that's right. very jarring to see that for the first time. But I feel like it's my responsibility to make sure she's safe. And I, you know, I have a friend who, um, who, a, a friend I've known for many, many, many years, I want to say probably 40 years. <laughs> and she is one of, four siblings and she has a similar relationship with her mother and she has been able to take a significant step back because there right. are other there are other people there it's diffuse yeah yeah i mean i'm an only child well i'm i'm an only child from my birth parents mm -hmm. you know marriage and then i've got step siblings yeah um so my dad has other children basically but my mum doesn't mm -hmm. and you know that relationship is it's intense in in a whole number of ways, and yeah, this. I mean, all of the response. The buck stops with me, doesn't it? <laughs> right? It does absolutely, absolutely. But but you know, like I, I'm okay with that. And I, what I find quite hard is I talk to other people about it, and they're, you know, quite often people say things like, "Well, you can't worry about that." You know, people have to sort themselves out. And I, like you, I, I really don't think that's the case. I think I am responsible for her as she ages, and. I hope my son will see, you know, will be the same about me right. as a, as another only child because that's that's what we do. That's what we're there for. I'm just taking a pause to let you know about my very exciting new Patreon feed. If you love the wintering sessions and would like to help it grow, you can now become a patron. Subscribers will get an exclusive monthly podcast in which I talk about the books, culture and the news that are currently inspiring me. 
You'll also get the chance to submit questions to my guests in advance of recordings and the answers will go into a special extended edition of the podcast that only patrons receive and a day early too. Plus, you'll get discounts and early booking links to my courses and events and your podcast will always be ad-free. If this sounds like your kind of thing, I have a special offer. The first 30 patrons will be able to join at a discounted rate of $3 a month for life. So do get in early and help to build the community from the foundations. Go to patreon.com forward slash Catherine May or follow the link in my bio to subscribe. And please don't worry if this isn't for you. The regular version of the wintering sessions will still be free and I really appreciate your listens. Now back to the show. I think it is the human condition. I mean, I think that that is certainly, you know, I've known people who've had to uh, make the decision, make the very difficult decision to step away completely. You know, and I, I have to be completely honest and say that, you know, certainly there have been times in my life where I have considered doing that. And in 2000, when I'm when I left New York City, I lived, I don't know if, uh, how well you know New York, but so there's... <laughs> a little. <laughs> yeah, there's the Upper West Side, and then, then there's the East Side, and there's the massively beautiful Central Park that separates mm. the two. And so yes. I lived on the East Side, and she lived on the West Side, and that was the distance that we had between us was Central Park, <laughs> you know? Right. Quite a good barrier. That's quite an effective barrier. <laughs> it, it was, because I knew that, you know, she was never going to walk through Central Park. She saw too many horror movies in the 1970s to walk through Central Park, but <laughs> which is perfectly safe and beautiful and, and lovely. But, you know, but she would, as I, as I had mentioned earlier, she'd get into a taxi and come over and I'd find her. I'd come home from work. My work as an editor, I'd come home and find her sitting in my lobby waiting for me for five hours. Um, oh my goodness! Because I had gone out, uh, I had gone out with with colleagues and friends, and and so finally, you know, and and in a relationship that is that codependent and that is that enmeshed, mm. it's very hard to make a break at one's own life in terms of settling down elsewhere with someone else, which is, of course, the thing that we yeah. are meant to do, and. Um, I fell in love with my with my partner, um, and you know I knew she lived two hours away. And in 2000, I made the decision to finally leave New York City, which is my home, and move to the country. And I, mm-hmm. I went from a, a a city of 10 million people to a town of 3,500 people, um, <laughs> and a, you know a single stoplight, um, you know moose walking through my backyard, that you know that kind of thing, <laughs> and. It was a very fraught decision that was filled both with love and excitement and you know, looking forward to this mm. next phase of my life and also having to make such a radical change and a radical break from my mother who yeah. had always been uh, who had always been my primary relationship. Mm. And has she forgiven your wife yet? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect okay, I up. suspect yep. <laughs> I suspect not. My mother is not great with this forgiveness <laughs> thing. You know, she sort of grits her teeth about people who have done her wrong um, you know, 50 years ago. So 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 prob- probably not. Although they have a very good relationship and my partner is uh, is we we call her Saint Susan because she is um she has a, an enormous heart and and is enormously <laughs> giving and kind and is very much that way to my mother. And whether my mother understands it, feels it, appreciates it, that's a whole, that's almost, it's not irrelevant, but it's almost, uh, it's a, that's almost a different, different conversation. And so, yeah. so Susan is there for her and has been very, very good to her. And and that's something I'm very grateful for. So yeah, no, it's it's been an interesting. I, time. I am full of admiration. I really <laughs> am for Susan because my husband's mother was quite difficult. She died actually, uh, well, fifteen years ago now, so quite a while. But I 
could not show her the same tolerance. Um, so I really, I really found it very unbearable. But but actually, my husband ended up not speaking to her as well, and, oh, and wow. they they were estranged when she died. So I think that was a really a very kind of untenable relationship. But I I could not find the forbearance that, that I know I should have done while they were while they were still in contact because I just. I was so shocked by the, yeah, the sort of manipulation that went on in, in that family. It really, it took me by surprise and I I didn't know how to handle it. And I, I do wonder now if I could have handled it better at this age than, you know, than I did. Because I, I met my husband when I was 18. So, you know, I was, I was not a grown up really. But I don't know. I don't know if I'd do it any better now. Honestly, it was, it was tricky. You know, I, th- I think that, I think that we can only do what we can do when we can do it, you know? Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And we're very different people when we're younger, you know, than mm. we are when we ourselves become parents. I mean, I'm, I'm not, not a parent, um, but certainly with the passage of time and the benefit of distance and, you know, certainly a certain amount of therapy and a certain amount of, meditation and um, connection Mm. to other things outside myself, those things have enabled me to see my mother in a very different, different way. You know, when you're in the throes of it, of the manipulation and the acrimony, um, it's very hard to see beyond that. It's very hard to sort of pull yourself, uh, you know, I call it the swamp. It's very hard to pull yourself (laughs) out of the swamp while you're getting sort of sucked into it. And when people are, you know, your parents, they, they know you and they know what Mm. your buttons are and they know, you know, and they, they don't quote unquote fight fair, you know, (laughs) and, and that, and that becomes, um, you know, that becomes very, very toxic and Mm. it can be very abusive and often is. And, and and i'm i'm very very lucky and very grateful that uh that i have somebody in my life who is the sort of you know the quintessential sort of calm reserved love filled person that she is but you know i and i know that this is something that that you have uh, that you have found to be the case i take mm-hmm. enormous enormous pleasure in nature and yeah. um and and yeah. while I don't love being outside in the bitter cold and I and I have not <laughs> and I have not gone down the you know swimming in bitterly cold waters <laughs> yet <laughs> which I know even, even I'm a bit scared this year I have to say it's got really cold really quickly I'm a bit like Whoa, I don't know <laughs> yeah you know I, I I really I really want to try and do that but I you know I being outside being among trees I know that um you know you've spoken a lot about a lot about mm. trees and I find those things to be very, very grounding. Um, yeah. and, and when I'm yeah. really in a, in a state or uh, experiencing a lot of, um, difficulty and sadness surrounding my mother, you know, and, and work, I mean, this past year has been a very, very complicated year. Things sort of spinning around, spinning beyond my control, being outside right. and, we have this massively large oak tree on our next street and it's it's probably 500 years old and and I will walk past it with the dog every morning and just lay my hands on it and oh, um yeah. and and stop and the neighbors are probably looking at me and I really don't care <laughs> <You know? laughs> but I feel better I feel better I think there are there are certain trees that you can really have ongoing relationships with in a in a really like healing and and yeah nourishing way yeah Um, they just seem to invite it I I have certain trees that I like to go and have a chat with sometimes and they do seem to listen I'm not sure if I'm very good at listening back I don't know (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think that's that's one of the wonderful things about you and your work is is that I don't know broad-minded acceptance of somebody who's unashamedly difficult and and you know there's no other other way to put it but who you still can love and care for and i enjoy that well thank um, you i would love to talk to you about music 
Okay. Um, because your mum was a singer, is a singer. I mean, I, you know, you posted a link to her on Instagram recently with her bursting into song in the most <laughs> glorious way. Um, but I wanted to ask you about your relationship with music because mm. I've I've seen you, uh, you know, little videos of you playing your guitar and you're a beautiful musician. Thank you. But I get the sense that's something you've, you're beginning to reclaim after a, a long time of it being a hidden part of you. Yeah, it's it's a, you know, it's something that I, I for a very long time, didn't talk about and sort of buried. I began playing the guitar when I was four years old. And it was one of those things, you know, certain people are artists and they're, you know, they're visual artists and they begin painting when they're children and, and they, they take mm-hmm. to it. And, and guitar was my thing. Music was my thing. And I, uh, I would spend hours every day playing, um, I studied for a while with Eddie Simon, who was Paul Simon's brother, uh, who was from my town where I grew up and in, in Forest Hills, New York, and uh, which is just outside of Manhattan. And I would get lost in it in a way that I can only describe as, as meditational. Um, mm. I would get lost in it. It nurtured me. It saved me. It rescued me. It did all of those things. And that was all through, you know, my childhood and my teen years. And, you know, I grew up in the as a teen in the 70s in New York, and that was a very hard time. Um, yeah. You know, we had we had a lot of, um, you know, not, not terribly, not horribly violent, but we had some very significant events in my community uh, th- mm-hmm. that were um, that were really quite jarring and and. And then when I went away to college, I, I thought, well, you know, I'm here I am in college and, and there are coffee houses and, and um, you know, and pubs and that kind of thing. And, and I became friendly with, um, with some other people who were also musicians and they were, they were really singers. They were not, not, um, they were not pianists or mm. guitarists in mm. any way, but, and so I started performing with them in various places and, and one thing led to another and, uh, I started opening for people, um, opening shows for people who were significantly <laughs> better <laughs> musicians than I, and who people, your listeners might might recognize their names. And and um, and then when I left college, you know, I came back to New York and moved back in with my mother, who had moved into the city with her second husband, and. I started working um, as an editor for Random House, and and I and I stopped playing. I, I played less and less and less with every passing year, until I discovered that I had a a, a family member, um, a young cousin who was. I mean, you, there's no other way to describe who he was uh, beyond calling him a prodigy. I mean, he he oh, wow. was a classically trained. He's 11 years my junior. He was a classically trained uh, violinist, but anything that he touched that had strings, he could master in a way uh, that yeah. was beyond my comprehension. And so the violin became fiddle and that became, um, he, he loved British music. He loved, loved, loved British mu- music. He played in Nashville. He was a, um, he became a, a, um, a studio musician in Nashville on the side. And so he had a full-time job and that's what he did on the side. And he and I became very close and he, he became my playing partner. And I started to pick up the mandolin and I started to pick up the banjo and, and we would get together and pass instruments back and forth. And, and we would both of us move into places that were, you know, that were, um, sort of almost otherworldly. I mean, right. and and meditational is really the only spirit. It was just playing with him was a spiritual experience. That total absorption and flow. Complete absorption. And mm-hmm. in 2008, he was very, very ill and he took his own life in 2008. And oh, I'm so sorry. And I, and I, um, I put my instruments away and I latched the cases and uh, and I and I didn't go back to them probably for, I would say, um, more than a decade. I couldn't look mm-hmm. at my guitars. I couldn't look at the mandolin. I couldn't look at the banjo. And it's only been in the last year or so that I've returned to it, returned to them, 
as really a part of the grieving process. Um, mm. I think that there was an enormous amount of shame in my family surrounding his health and yeah. his his illness and how, you know, how things unfolded for him. He was a wonderful, wonderful man, very kind, um, incredibly talented, very giving, emotionally giving. Mm. So, you know, the message was, don't talk about it, don't grieve, don't just get on with your life and keep moving right. forward. And the way that it, that affected me was I stopped doing the one thing that saved me over and over again. Isn't that extraordinary? Don't we hear that story over and over again, how we so often let go of the thing that soothes us in a, in a kind of shame or I don't know what. You know, as, as adults, we so often lose those extraordinary talents we have and those creative practices that we need the most. Yeah, yeah. And and the things that will really ground us and rescue us and save us and nurture us. Mm. And, you know, mm. as a as a, um, a food person and as someone who's written about food for so many years, you know, I, I, I write less about the practical aspects of food and how to how to cook things. And you know, yeah. and my my friends, you know, Diana Henry and Igella do that much better than I <laughs> much better than I do. <laughs> but I, I've realized all these years that I was really writing about nurturing and sustenance and the things that um heal the heart and heal the soul mm-hmm. and the spirit. And that's also what music did for me. And to have not had that for more than a decade since Harris died was enormously problematic for me and it's and a huge the pro- loss yeah it was yeah. a huge loss and the and the problems manifested personally for me in many many other ways and you know including addictions and things like that that are too mm. you know too um you know um, um complicated to you know to 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 chat about in, sure. in one place but little by little you know, I hear the, the the phrase, you know, something cracked something else open and the light came, the light came through. Mm. And a couple, it was, it was really about, um, about a year ago that I realized with the, um, the pandemic and, and um, the quarantine, you know, that I could take advantage of my music again to try and bring me through this terrible time. Um, and, and it has. And so I've returned to it in fits and starts. And I can, um, if I close my eyes, I can hear Harris saying, yes, do it, do it, you know, and (laughs) I love that. Yeah. And is it coming back to you in the same form that it was before? or, Or are you a changed musician now? Is there, have you moved on? You know, it is coming back to me in a way that I, I played a very specific kind of music back back then. I'm, I'm much more uh, like Harris was inclined towards British music and uh, folk music and American folk music, and um, right. and I have an ear, natural ear for it. I don't know why, but I have a natural ear for it, um, and I find it very soothing and interesting and historical and and mm. um you know we call it roots music in in my country yeah. and yeah and it's something that um that I'm very connected to and so that's really how it's how it's coming back i do love classical music enormously but i don't play it i do read music but i i've just never uh, i've never considered myself so technically proficient that i would i would go down that road but <laughs> I listen to music differently now. I hear music differently. So I'm inclined to listen to things now that I never would have listened to back then. Um, things like, right. you know, John Cage and, and, um, mm. and Philip Glass and, and, and I, you know, I was talking to someone recently about the, the joy of making art for just the sake of it, making art just for the joy of it, rather than as a means to something else. Um, Mm. um, And and I think that, you know, we are the making species, whether, you know, whether it's music or or food or writing or poetry or sculpture or, or visual arts. And when we don't do that, that means that something's gone off. Yeah. 
And I, I think for people with like a practice that becomes professional, you know, like, like published writers is a really good example of that. I think often we need an extra secret practice or private practice, if you like, that we're allowed to screw up in and we're allowed to, you know, that, that's less fraught than than our writing becomes when, we, you know, when we know that we've got to show it to an editor and we know that people have got expectations of us. And it, you know, it takes some of the joy out of that, I think, after a while. And so it, I think it's really good to have an extra thing. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, I think that we, you know, we we are um, a species of perfection. And certainly when you're a writer um, and you're a brilliant writer and, you know, writing is something that I knew in somewhere in the recesses of my brain that that was the thing that I was ultimately going to do. Mm. We have to have something in our lives that that is private and that is ours and that perhaps yeah. we don't have to be perfect at it. I think that perfection is um, perfection is the devil, as as my friend Andy Lamont <laughs> likes to say. Perfection is doom. <laughs> She's so, I mean, as as with many things, she's so right about that. She is, she is, absolutely. <laughs> but also, I, I just think you have to keep something for yourself, you know, something that belongs to you and that is, I don't know, like a, it's almost like having a glorious affair with something and, and nobody else can interfere with that or intervene. It's none of their business to do that. It's it's you and your relationship with the thing you're passionate about. And I, I think it's so important to have that. And if you don't have it to find it, mm-hmm. I, I, I feel like I could do with a bit more of that in my life right now, actually, I have to say, I, I, yeah, I need, I need a, I need a thing. Yeah. Mm. You know, and it's, it's a funny thing. I mean, this is where um, issues of social media be- become murky because, um, you know, we're inclined people who are in the public eye or, you know, who are writers or artists and we have books and we have, you know, we have a presence. Um, we want to share what is what, yes. what we're yeah. doing. And and so how do you balance that? You know, that's always a, that's a yeah. question for me that I that I ask yeah. a lot. Oh, it's such a big question. And I, I quite like the idea of leaving that open at the end of the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that seems like a, a perfect reflective note to end on. Hopefully everyone will be tracking you down after this. So I'll make sure that all of your, your links are in the show notes. But I just wanted to say thank you so much for such a lovely conversation. It was brilliant to hear your thoughts about such a wide range of things and, and just such a pleasure to talk to you. So thank you. Thank you so much, Catherine. It's really just a, a pleasure and an honour. And, you know, I've gone through two copies of your book already. <laughs> yeah, you've worn one out. Oh, my goodness. The first one <laughs> fell apart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's just your your work has meant so much to me, and and uh, and I know means so much to so many. Um, it's it's just been um, wintering affected me in a way that few books really do. So, um, oh, truly, truly grateful for it and for you and your and your story. Makes me very happy to help. I'm beginning to lose hope a bit. The chanterelles are not forthcoming today. There's a load of other really good things, though. There's some quite old turkey tail that's turned green and some false turkey tail. Look them up if you don't know them. Turkey tail are really pretty. They're like these kind of bluish fans of mushrooms that really do look like the tail of a turkey. And the false ones are orange. Bracket mushrooms, both of them. And I just lifted up a log and found this amazing stretch of white mycelium underneath it, which is always such a thrill. I find it a thrill. There's some little tiny, tiny, fine white mushrooms poking up through the leaf mulch. Like little ghosts. They're so bright. And as I've walked, I've remembered the name of the mushroom I was trying to think of earlier. I was trying to think of porcelain fungus, which I found on my favourite mushroom-growing tree. They're these beautiful, kind of ethereal, white mushrooms that grow out of... I can't remember which tree. I should probably know that. They do look like china. They look like bone china, pure white. 
but they're also a tiny bit slimy, which means I never much feel like eating them. I know many people do. I'm sure they're fine. I'm not the world's greatest mushroom hunter and I'm not the world's greatest... I don't know what's being shot over there. I think they're scaring the crows away. Sorry about the noise. The countryside, eh? But yeah, I'm not the world's greatest mushroom eater either because I don't like the ones that taste of almonds. I'm really suspicious of them. (laughs) I know it's not reasonable. But some things, you know, just don't meet your palate. My lovely friend Hannah picked me a load of hen of the woods recently. I couldn't eat it because it smelled of almonds. I didn't trust it as food. I told her that cyanide smells of almonds too. And she laughed at me. But you know, maybe that survival instinct will save me one day. Or maybe I'm just missing out on some really good things. I don't know. Either way, I didn't eat them. So I probably don't fully belong in the mushroom bro universe. But I do love looking. It's the looking that I do this for. But often, yeah, you have to accept that you look and you don't find. That's part of the deal. Sometimes they seem to talk to you rather than you finding them. They seem to present themselves to your eye when you're not even searching. Other times... They're so elusive. It feels like they're hiding today. Maybe they don't want to be picked. But there is something about that quality of attention that you sink into when you're hunting for food like this. I mean, I'm not hunting for food because I'm hungry. I'm hunting for food because I'm greedy. (laughs) But there is... Yeah a different way of being that you find when you sink into that level of concentration and just look gently walking all the while it's very peaceful I like to think that life was once like this for at least some of us such a pleasure anyway enough mushroom ramblings for me I want to say thank you so much to Alyssa for just such a wonderful conversation. I always want to sit at her dining table with her and yak for hours. That was just wonderful. And thank you to Buddy, my producer, to Megan, who helps to sort out everything always for me. Everyone wonders how I get so much done. The answer is Megan straightforwardly and to fraggle the dog who sometimes finds the mushrooms on my behalf has refused to do so today we will be having words afterwards don't you worry and thank you to you all for listening my patreon community who have jumped in to this space that i've made and just given me so much joy the last few weeks i'm so grateful to you thank you it's really brilliant to be making things to share with you yeah I'm optimistic about 2022 for all of us there's good things coming (laughs) see you soon Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.